Mum died two years ago. She had early onset Alzheimer's. That, that was really tough, you know, to find out in your late 20s that, that your mum's got a disease like that. There's no cure. It's a death sentence. We're joined now by the boss, executive chairman of Iceland Foods. The business was started by my mum and dad uh, 53 years ago. You can imagine when I was growing up as a kid, always heard stories about Iceland. But actually, I was absolutely certain I never wanted to join it. Got a thousand shops. We employ 30,000 colleagues. Five million customers a week. It's an amazing platform to do good stuff. Being the first retailer to remove palm oil, which was a really spicy issue. I really feel that strongly about palm oil. Well, why have you still got 200 products at Iceland this morning to have it in there? We announced that we were going to be palm oil free. We had a, an ad called Rangtang, and it was banned from TV. Because either you're against it and everything that it does to the environment, mm. or you don't care about it. it. Got me on the thick end of the Indonesian government, load in the street. I've got a picture right behind here. You was doing Everest for your mum. And it's something I always knew I had to come back and do. I did it in her memory, but Everest has probably beaten me up. Target was to raise a million quid specifically to build the world's first rare dementia support centre. It was the deadliest year on record. 17 people died, including a guy on our expedition. Things can go wrong very quickly. And I was stranded and there were 20 people trying to get up, climbing over me, and I started to lose my vision. But the worst thing of all was that I was lying next to a dead body. Our champion today is Richard Walker, raised by the family who founded the multi-million pound company, Iceland. You would think a step into industry would be easy, but that's far from the truth. He built his own empire and property and faced family hardships through Alzheimer's disease. Rather than play victim though, he climbed Everest for his mother, raising two million pounds during the most dangerous year that mountain had ever seen. He suffered with severe death impact zones and this story is one not to be missed. But welcome to Power Cheers, of the yeah, Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, this is our <laughs> new uh, drink, I as you're know. probably very aware. Yeah. But do you want to do a little taste test? Yeah, let's do it. Go on. I'll cheers. give you a cheers, but you're a bit far away. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. Drinker champions. <laughs> what do you think the taste is like? Because we've had like a controversial opinion. And we're like, what's the actual flavour of it? Yeah. Uh, when I first... I, it was almost a bit grapefruity when I first did it. It was quite yeah. like... Um, quite refreshing. It's definitely kind of pretty lively, isn't it? The taste for what me, it? it's lilt. I just can't. Oh, really, lilt! I can't, yeah, get, I yeah, can't yeah. escape the feeling of lilt, but it's good because it's an energy drink. Yeah, like, there's definitely something tropical about it. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, but um, yeah, w welcome down to Power of the Ordinary. It's um, it's a very cool set. Our idea for this whole podcast is essentially speaking to people that do extraordinary things, but actually, what is the real? What's the real story? What's the ordinary moments that give you power? And Yourself, you've got quite an interesting story. And I know you kind of work in, for Iceland. Would you like to tell us to start there? What is it you do for Iceland? Yeah, uh, well, I'm exec chairman now. Mm -hmm. So um, the the business was started by my mum and dad uh, 53 years ago. And as you can imagine, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, always heard stories about Iceland and this swashbuckling entrepreneurial rise, yeah. you know, around the the dining room table listening about how they were growing the business yeah. but actually i was absolutely certain i never wanted to join it <laughs> it was the last thing i wanted to do to try and emulate my dad you know who's this legendary retailer who's, yeah. who's built this this phenomenal company from scratch so um yeah i sort of plowed my own furrow and um i moved to london i qualified as a chartered surveyor um and i worked there for a couple of years and then i set up my own business in poland um which was like um an investment company out there right. and lived and worked out there full time. 
And then eventually, I think I was avoiding my destiny of selling frozen <laughs> peas for a living. And I, I moved back home. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, I said to my dad, like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to kind of move on from property yeah. and uh, I want to give Iceland a go. And in his Yorkshire accent, he said, don't bother, collect rents. It's much easier. <laughs> Um, and I think maybe that, you know, that was a bit of reverse psychology, but he's right. Like retail is a tough game and it's not been a straightforward journey because everyone knows you're the boss's son and yeah. presumes you've been given a leg up, which obviously I have. Um, but I was determined to do it the right way. And I, I started off, um, in Iceland's in London right. and, uh, I had this weird dual life where I'd go into my property business on a Monday in Mayfair and wear a suit and tie and look yeah. very smart. And then, uh, Tuesdays to Saturdays, I'd put on a name badge and a clip on tie and I'd go to Iceland and Greenford and stack shelves. So um, it was the complete yeah, polar opposite. Yeah. It was total like juxtaposition, total opposite, but it was brilliant. It was like the best year of my life, made friends for life. It yeah. was, it was fantastic. And also to learn about the business from the bottom up was really useful and put me in good stead. And I then for you perhaps doing that as well, not it, bringing you in at the top. It's like, no, stat shelf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was the right way to do it because I think respect is earned no mm. matter who you are. Um, and then, yeah, various roles kind of out in shops and eventually head office. And I've run the international team and one of our businesses called the Food Warehouse and now as executive chairman. So... I'm not quite sure what my job is now. I suppose yeah. it's like chief cheerleader <laughs> and uh, looking after sort of people and yeah. customers and um, the proposition, really. The thing is, though, that was like a real good whistle-stop tour of like that kind of growth. But like, there must be so much more to those moments, like being a child whilst your parents are setting up what Iceland is today. Yeah. Like, that's got to be something like that. Yeah. How, what, what was that like as a child with your parents? Yeah, I mean... It, as as with everyone, like your mum and dad are just your mum and dad, yeah. you know, so there was that. But obviously I was aware of this thing and it was all consuming. You know, it's um, dad's an extraordinary person because yeah. it, it doesn't it's not a normal person who starts and creates and develops and actually still um, owns and is involved in a business as large as Ison. So yeah. um, it, it was very much like, you know, the two of them, mum thought of the name. Right. I think dad wanted to call it Penguin, which would have been a disaster. Um, <laughs> but yeah, mum thought the name Iceland and she worked on on the checkout and dad um, did this work the stock and um, he basically borrowed 30 quid from his mum. Okay. This was in 1970 and 30 quid, like proper working class background, a lot of money in those days. He paid it back. Um, right. And that was to... to um, pay for the first month's rent because everything else was on credit from the stock and the, the refrigeration, yep. everything else. Um, but they opened it, this tiny little shop, not much bigger than this room. And that was in Oswestry in North Shropshire. And they they calculated all of the sales at the end of the first week, deducted all the costs, and they made a profit. And every week since, for 53 years, the business has turned a profit. So from first week opening, it's always been a profit. Yeah. Never balancing out. Never. That's, no, that's an impressive But it's, it's not been a straight line to success. And, yeah. you know, we, we've very much ridden the journey with, with mum and dad. And, and, uh, and, you know, dad was kicked out of the business um, uh, about 20 years ago. Um, it's been a public business. It's been a private business. Yeah. He's owned all of it. He's owned none of it. So it's not been like a, an easy ride or a straight line to success. Yeah. There's been many, many twists and turns. But what's amazing now is together with the Dallywell family, like, you know, we, we're, we're back in control. Yeah. It's a private family business. 
got a thousand shops across the UK. We employ 30,000 colleagues, 5 million customers a week. It's amazing platform to yeah. do good stuff and, um, you know, to get involved in exciting things well, like uh, Furosity. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for listening and give one of you loyal listeners a chance to win a year-long supply of Furosity to show appreciation for all your support. To enter, all you need to do is subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and share your favorite episode on social media. But don't forget to tag us so we can see it. We really do appreciate you, and thank you for listening. Um, I, I did read that you climbed... I've got a picture right behind here. There you go, oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. You was doing Everest. <laughs> yeah, which is no <laughs> a couple of months ago. <laughs> and I heard you was doing that for your mum. Yeah. And that yeah. sounds like a... I don't want to dive into it but like a, a horrible scenario to go through yeah yeah well, yeah it was so mum died two years ago um of alzheimer's mm. and she was only i forget now she was like early 70s but she was diagnosed when she was in her early 60s right. so she had early onset alzheimer's um and that that was really tough you know to find out in your late 20s that, that your mum's got uh, a disease like that you know that is there's no cure it's yeah. a death sentence and um the long kind of slow progression is horrendous and i think you know it's really important to talk honestly about what dementia is and the yeah. impacts because a lot of charities will show like pictures of old couples arm in arm skipping through a field you know and you can live with dementia and have a quality of life well you, it's shit you know mm. you can't especially towards the end um so we've as a family and actually as a business always been very very um motivated to try and fund as as much um as we can into uh, dementia research yeah. so in 2011 just after mum was diagnosed um dad and i went off to everest to the north side as you do with the target of getting halfway up to the North Col, uh, which is at 7,000 meters. And the target was to raise a million quid for Alzheimer's Research UK, yeah. and we did. Um, wow. And that was fantastic. Um, but I came home, ready to come home. I didn't really know anything about climbing big expeditions. We were kind of exactly the sort of people you read about that have no business being on the mountain. <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, so we came back alive, if a little bit, um, uh, uh, sort of tired and hungry right. um but it's always kind of been there that you know i probably could have summited and whatever and i've sort of quietly built up my climbing cv over the years since and i've done the matterhorn and first ascents in kyrgyzstan uh, right. of unclimbed mountains and you know of the old man of hoy some really cool stuff um and it felt like the right time to go back to everest especially now mum has died to kind of do it in her honor mm. to finish the circle and to raise another million quid, this time uh, specifically to build the world's first rare dementia support center. Okay. Um, and like I said, mum had a, a rare form of dementia. Um, so yeah, I was very much kind of galvanized and motivated to do that. And this time I went on the south side in yeah. Nepal as opposed to 12 years ago, which was the north side in Tibet. And uh, yeah, we did like a super kind of fast one-on-one -on -one, uh, lightweight ascent with a guy called Kenton Cool, who has been to the mountain he's done it a lot of times, right? loads of times. Yeah, he's got the record for a non-Nepali. He's, he's summited seventeen times now, so wow. he's he's the guy to go with. And um, yeah, we you know we did it, and yeah. uh, and it was really tough. And there's very good bits to it, very horrendous bits to it. But you know, the main thing is came back with all my fingers and toes, and and we'd raised another 
over a million quid now for um for this center when you say there was there was ups and downs mm. to that trip yeah. can you give us like a genuinely because re- there's not loads there's very few people that's climbed everest yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not a common thing yeah yeah what was your real life account good and bad yeah i mean you know and i can i can share the photos and maybe put it up on the on the notes but um yeah. you know some of the scenery and what you see is absolutely stunning you know breathtaking and, yeah. and those images are just seared in my memory forever um standing literally on top of the world you know the highest at, point after a month of climbing and going through a lot of suffering but after six months of training and actually after 12 years in the making you know since yeah. i was last there that was surreal and incredible to kind of look down and see the curvature of the earth and the shadow of everest kind of propelled hundreds of miles over the horizon as the sun's rising behind you i mean it's just mind-bending like once in a lifetime yeah kind of thing. yeah 100 yeah definitely i'm not going back <laughs> um and the camaraderie, you know, the Sherpa that that are the real superstars and heroes on the mountain, and you know, obviously getting very close to Kenton and experience the whole Nepalese and Himalayan culture is amazing. Um, but yeah, there's there's very bad sides to it. I mean, it was the deadliest year on record this right. year. Seventeen people died, including a guy on our expedition um, that on... we were associated with. Yeah. Um, so there is a total madness to it, and. Yeah. Um, you're not doing anything new. You're not doing anything that hasn't been done before. It's just objectively very dangerous because yeah. it's so high. And, you know, things can go wrong very quickly. And you read about the rubbish on Everest. I, I didn't see any except at high camp. Okay. And, and there was a lot of rubbish there and it wasn't nice to see. You also read about the queues on Everest. Now, Everest obviously is massive and it can take the queues. Yeah. I think there were... 400 permits issued this year for climbers. About half of those turned back because it was so cold. But that's not many people on a mountain the size of Everest. But the problem is you're all going one route up a fixed line. Okay. And people are very spread out. Um, but there are bottlenecks. And I was stranded just off the summit when we'd summited coming back down. And there were 20 people trying to get up, climbing over me. And, you know, I couldn't get down until they came up. So I was just laying down, um, waiting for over an hour until they passed me. And the, I started to lose my vision because I had um, hemorrhoids and um, hemorrhages in my in my eyes, um, which um, was because of the, the pressure and being up there too long. But the worst thing of all was that I was lying next to a dead body at the time. So, you know, there are, there are, there are some things that are really ugly and defy logic about that climb. What was um, going through your mind at that point? Did you think you was going to join that person? Because I, I can't imagine losing my eyesight. That yeah, I was, that just really uh, drained me because up until that point, you know, we were smashing it and we were always the fastest. We were kind of unclipping off the fixed ropes and, and overtaking people and going fast. We we're always early into camp, always felt strong. Altitude, I think I took one Panadol for the, the whole trip. So I mean, doing it was, well. I was eating well, you know, regulating everything well, but... On the way down, everything suddenly went wrong, and my like th- this issue with my eyes lost about sixty percent of my vision, and everything was quite milky. Um, and I was really panicking because I was at eight thousand eight hundred meters, and with, I imagine no help. Yeah, no, I mean you can't, you can't, there's there's no, you can't be carried off. It's a kilometer and a half above the height helicopters can fly <laughs> at. You know, you, you just you're on your own, and um, I knew I had to get down, but we'd been climbing for twelve hours straight through the night to summit 
our water had frozen because it was so cold. So we were dehydrated. And then I knew I still had a, another six, seven hours to go to get back to high camp. And you've got 40% vision left. And uh, yeah, I've got 40% vision less. And that high camp is still in the death zone at 8,000 meters. So you're not at safety there. So I'd, I started to really worry, obviously. But, you know, it's amazing if you dig deep, you can what you can do and you can get through it. But um, yeah, it was quite quite traumatic at the time, to be fair. What, what was the mindset that did get you through? Like in that moment where you, you lay there? Because I, I, can't, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Mm. I, I don't think anyone can unless you've climbed Everest. Yeah. That yeah. moment of feeling truly, well, it sounds like alone. Yeah. Nexus. Well, I, I was with, with Kenton. Um, he really okay. was the reason that kind of I, I got through it. And, you know, he, he kind of was talking to me. And okay. it was difficult not seeing because when you, 80% of accidents happen on the way down. Do they? And, um, you know, there's a reason for that because you're emotionally elated but exhausted. You know, you, you're so tired because you've been going for so long. So you, you're not concentrating mm. as much. But I had this added issue on top of that. So I kept kind of tripping and couldn't really see, but he was great in terms of talking me down and talking me through it. Mm. Um, but the big thing that kept me going throughout really was, um, you know, the, the charity and the fundraising and all my icing colleagues who were supporting me and backing me. Yeah. Um, that meant the world. And it, it really kind of got me through the tough bits because 90% of it is grim. You know, you're, yeah. you're scared, you're homesick, you're anxious. And you're thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Mm. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> I, you would be thinking those things like yeah. why did i decide to do this yeah I, exactly i want to be at home on my yeah. sofa and yeah. be back with my family kind of yeah thing. it's mad um but uh, you know there's retrospectively obviously you look back and it's the best yeah. thing ever and you know so glad i did it when you said as well before that things went i, I did pick it up things go wrong really quickly mm. and there was someone on your expedition that yeah. didn't make that mm. What was that like? Because I imagine you obviously did they become a friend and then all of a sudden Yeah. Yeah, I do I do a talk on Everest and I, I show a picture of him um in terms of the kind of key lessons I learn. And, you know, one of them is the obvious point that life is very, very short. Mm -hmm. So um I yeah, I'm Peter was his name and he was the first yeah. guy to welcome me to base camp. Yeah. Um really super nice guy told me all about his work back home in Canada as um as a medic and also his plans to climb with his son when he when he got back home as well he had this big climbing trip planned and we'd we'd sit next to each other most meal times in the mess tent like i said it was one on one with kenton but we were attached to this larger expedition which is how i met peter and we were using their base camp facilities and their sherpa support yeah. so we'd keep crossing paths and share base camp together and stuff um but yeah he um he was about a week behind us and I'd actually got back home by the time I got news that it had happened, but he got to uh, high camp, camp four, 8,000 meters and had a pulmonary edema, which, you know, is just, it, it can happen because of the altitude and they couldn't get him down quickly enough. Um, what is, uh... It is to do with uh, your, your lungs. Okay. Um, and, you know, but human, the reason it's called the death zone is your body is, is dying above 8,000 meters consistently yeah yeah so you know your your body is just shutting down because you it's trying to conserve what little oxygen there is right. um you can't eat you can't sleep you know and um humans aren't supposed to to, 
to survive at those levels. So the entire time, essentially, when you get to the death zone, your body is more surviving. Yes. It's, just, it's fighting the death. Yeah. Yeah. And which is why you've got to, you've, you, you can't spend long there. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I came back down um, after the issue with my eyes and kind of came into camp four, we end, because I couldn't see, there was no, what we were supposed to do was kind of have a cup of tea and rest for a few hours and then get the hell down, yeah. you know, uh, to the next camp below, which would have been another four or five hours. There was just no chance. Like, I couldn't see. So I wasn't going to climb the lotsy face, you know, descend the yeah. lotsy face uh, like a vertical kilometer ice wall. So we had to spend a second night at camp four in the death zone, which wasn't part of the plan. Um, but yeah, the thing with Peter, I mean, you know, life is very short and whatever you do, make sure it's what you want to do because, you know, your, your time is limited. Yeah. Mm. Do you still think about Peter? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I've got a photo of him and, um, yeah. But I think, you know, I think the whole expedition, it, it taught me a few interesting things. Um, not only that, but just the power of kind of perseverance and resilience. Mm. Um Another interesting story is when you have a trek to base camp to acclimatize. It takes about a week. Yeah. So you start at three and a half thousand meters. You, you trek over a week through the Cumbi Valley and it's beautiful. It's like rhododendrons and you know stunning scenery. And eventually you, you get to, to base camp, which is really where you start climbing properly. But on that trek, we passed the foot of a mountain called Amma de Blam, which is an amazing looking thing. It's like the Matterhorn of, of the Himalaya and it's super high and rugged and jagged yeah. i remember like looking way up and marveling because it just seems so impossibly high and then i just had this horrendous sinking feeling when i realized like it was two kilometers lower than <laughs> everest and I, I i was i had to get myself my ass up to the top of the world to the top of everest and back down you know no one was going to carry me i couldn't drive yeah. or heli or anything and it was like i can't you know i can't do it and in that moment, it just seemed completely hopeless. But it is amazing what you can achieve if you just keep going. And how you climb Everest is by putting one foot in the front yeah. of the other. I know? guess that's the kind of like perfect, I don't know what the word is, methodology or mm. when you compare two things together. Yeah. It's like that is the journey yeah. towards a goal. Like yeah. that mountain, you might not see it. When you set up that company, yeah. when you move countries or whatever it was, that's the goal. But you can't ever look at that destination all you've got to do is the steps yeah exactly just do the steps and put one foot in front of the other and i'll never forget it was a particularly it was a bitterly cold year in terms and that's why it was was so deadly um so we only had five ten minutes on the summit it was close to minus 50 with the wind chill but one thing i do and i don't remember much because it was all a blur and very weird and surreal but one thing i do remember when i was on the summit i looked down and i saw this tiny speck like miles beneath me and it was the summit of Amma de Blam. <laughs> and you're like, well, look where I've came from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did it take, how long did it take to a summit? Um, so you, you can't go straight up because your, your body's yeah. conk out. So you have to do what's known as rotations. You, you, you go up, you know, you might sleep uh, and then you go, you go down mm-hmm. and the whole idea is to acclimatize. And traditionally you might do four or five of these rotations. You'd climb, up and down and then you go a bit higher than before and then yeah. back down again then a bit higher again so chatting to bear grills when he did it it was it took three months and he did five rotations that's traditionally how you did it i mean we did it in less than a month and we only did one rotation but once we were acclimatized and we'd done that rotation 
from base camp to the summit, which is only halfway, and then back to base camp, yeah. it took a week. I'm pausing this podcast to bring to you Power Protein. Each bar has 20 grams of protein and 1.9 grams of sugar, and they come in two delicious tastes, caramel and chocolate fudge brownie. But I'm going to let the guests tell you how they taste. You can buy them on frosty.co.uk. Now, back to the podcast. And so you was basically over there for an entire month yeah. just for that climb, for, yeah. your, for your mum, raising so totally. Uh, yeah, we're just over, I think it's about 1 million and 60,000 now. So That's yeah. insane. It's great. And then also... <laughs> if anyone to... wants to donate, it's Cool Walk at Everest. So you can Google that and we've got a Just Giving page. I'll definitely, I'll definitely <laughs> jump on that. In, in terms of your mum, obviously I think everyone's mum tends to be such a big part of their life. Yeah. Um, what was she like? Um, she was great. And actually what the thing I was worried about when she died is that your strongest memories are the most recent ones. And actually the last couple of years were shit. Um, but now a few years have passed, like those memories fade and actually the stronger memories are now of when I was younger and before she got ill. And, um, she was just, um, just very kind, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, just very generous and gentle, quite shy. Um, and yeah, you know, I think some of those attributes I try and I, you know, I hope I've, I've got, um, but also try and bring into business as well. Yeah. I think like kindness is a, a real power and can certainly go a long way. And if you look at the Iceland family, 30,000 colleagues, yeah. you know, I think being there for each other, looking out for each other, trying to do the best that you can, you know, we'll never be the best payers in the world yeah. or whatever, but you know, we, we can be there for each other and we do do amazing things every day yeah. for our, our consumers and our colleagues. I think that's really important in business. Yeah. yeah. How was it in terms of the family when you found that out? As in like, was your mum very aware when she found out she'd had that or was it, what was that journey like and how was the family? I can imagine a similar thing myself. My mum's got alcohol induced dementia. Right. So she okay. was an alcoholic. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. It is what it is and it's a massive horrible factor of life, but I truly believe that as a disease is one of the worst diseases that mm. exist in mankind because that person's alive. Yeah. But you're slowly seeing them fade. Yeah. Away. And for me, it'd just be really interesting to hear because there's going to be many people that are listening to this that have that right now that's going on. Yeah. And sorry, to, um, if I can ask you a question, did yeah, you yeah. did your mum get through the alcoholism? Um, the yes and no. Mm. Um, my mum was a massive alcoholic, mm. uh, which introduces being a compulsive liar, mm. bipolar mm. like type energy, mm. and it comes from that need and that addiction. Mm. Um, and she gave up on life. She tried to take a life, right? Um, and then she completely gave up. And then she ended up going to an intensive care unit because she hadn't eaten, she hadn't drank, and she completely passed out. And I found her on a couch. Um, when she came around, she just, yeah, she was alive, but her brain was rewired. Right. When you said, did she ever get through alcoholism? The number one and best thing that could have happened, which was really weird, silver lining in every single cloud, was the Alzheimer's cured the alcoholism. Right, okay. Because she forgot she was addicted to alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. those younger memories of herself were like just coming back through and it has she has improved she's in a care home she went mm. through nursing homes mm. and she has massively improved yeah. over time which is amazing to see yeah and now i go to see her she, she's happy yeah she exactly. loves me yeah. and yeah. i've kind of got an essence of my mum back yeah it's not what any childhood what any kid wants 
when you're speaking about dementia and these types of things, mm. I think it's really important to talk about because it's not a disease that's talked about often and it does happen to people that are younger than it should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, what what a journey with your mum and I think, you know, alcoholism affects affects a lot of families and um, it's a disease, you know, it's mm. a horrible disease, like you said, with many kind of consequences. And with, with um, yeah, with dementia, you do lose them twice, you know, when the diagnosis hits and obviously when they eventually die. But um, people think it's like, a, you know, just getting more and more forgetful, but actually it's a hollowing out of your sense of self and yeah. your personality. I mean, you know, ironically, it's, it's nice in a way, like you said, it's silver lining to hear about your mum and, you know, the fact she, she forgot she was an alcoholic yeah. and, and you've got a, a bit of a back. And I think, you know, you cling on to those moments and it's always important and you, there's so much we don't know about the brain. Yeah. And I remember with mum, you know, I, I thought she was completely gone and, and just, you know, just kind of alive um but that was it but you know i'd play some like welsh music that she'd like because she was welsh and she started to cry and you know i could there were definitely kind of signs of personality and emotion that you just didn't even know were there yeah it's really important to kind of stay with that but as a family you know you asked what was it like and yeah i mean it's you know it's devastating and it's tough but in a weird way it kind of galvanizes you together you know we we focused on mum, gave her the best care we could. It was a very long course, you know, it lasted kind of over 10 years. Um, and yeah, eventually she passed away. But I think raising awareness on dementia is really important as well because it's it, it'll be the number one killer in the UK, yeah. you know, and yet we're at war with cancer. Um, but dementia attracts one seventh of the funding that cancer research does. Yeah. Um, and the knock-on consequences to families, you know, as we know, but to the economy, uh, is is massive, yeah. Um, and and that's why it's really important that we we find a cure for this. And I mean, you've done absolutely incredible things already mm -hmm. in towards doing that. Two million pounds in total. Oh, the first trip with yeah. your with your dad, and yeah. then the one that you've just done with, um, in a record not in record time, but <laughs> for quite. an average person. But <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. You say if someone said to me, "I'm going to do it in two sites," like it should take two months. Yeah, I'm going to do it in a month. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, no, thank bold. you. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Honestly, I, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. Like It's been pretty wide-ranging, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been very dimensional. You've gone from like a career perspective from like this, I really want to show my dad, build my own thing. Then you fall into the family business. You do something for your family in terms of like climbing Everest and achieving millions of pounds for an incredible cause. Um, been so fascinating listening to that story. And I'm sure there is much more to tell as well, but... I think in I, round two. Yeah, round two. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, let us know by subscribing to whichever channel you're listening through. It makes a huge difference and allows us to grow and bring you better content. Thanks for listening.